Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. This is Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. It's Friday, October 16th, 2020. Last Sunday, five games into a season that has already produced two spectacular collapses and precisely zero victories, the Atlanta Falcons said goodbye to their head coach Dan Quinn and general manager Thomas Dimitrov. In many ways, it felt like a natural culmination to a chain of events that began in 2017 when the Falcons managed to give up a 25-point second-half lead to the Patriots in Super Bowl 51. Today, Jeff Schultz, senior writer at The Athletic and a longtime Falcons beat reporter and columnist on how we got here and where we might be going. Well, this this may not be pleasant, but it feels like it's a good place to start. Um, let's let's just go back in time um, and, and rehash some memories that many of us have repressed. February 5th, 2017, NRG Stadium in Houston. It's around 7 p.m., I think, central time there. Uh, you're there, um, and the Falcons are up 28-3 to over the Patriots in Super Bowl 51. Here is Coleman, end zone, touchdown! So, does our story begin there, or does it begin somewhere else? I'm sorry, I have no recollection of that game. Uh, who, who ended up winning that one? Um, I, had, I had to Google it. <laughs> <laughs> um... It's funny uh, you bring this up because not long ago, uh, Jeff Howe, who also writes for The Athletic and covers the Patriots, and I sort of did this narrative um, replaying that night uh, and what it was like up in the press box covering that event. And it was interesting as we were going back and forth, um, it was amazing how both of us had not started writing our leads because we kept thinking something's going to happen. And we both eventually started writing really right about the same time, still projecting the Falcons were going to win that game. And in turn, getting back to your question, um, it, it kind of really did start after that. Now, I don't think there was this huge mental block that they just have not been able to overcome. I think the problem was after that game, a lot of mistakes were made. Um, they lost offensive coordinator Kyle Shanahan to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. They lost a number of members of the coaching staff. I don't think Dan Quinn, the former coach, replaced his assistants very well. And I think a lot of the great young players on that team that a lot of people inside the Falcons building who they thought and expected would grow into leadership roles and become great players, that hasn't happened. Well, let's let's step back and go even farther back in time. How long have you covered the Falcons? I came to Atlanta in 1989. I've been writing columns, um, and and many of them about the NFL for the last 15, 20 years. So, but I I've covered the NFL off and on really since 1983. And and when you came to Atlanta and started observing closely and writing about the Falcons, what was it about? the franchise at that time that stood out to you? 
disaster. <laughs> Look at that. 12 rushing yards for the Atlanta Falcons. They are not going to be successful if they don't do a whole lot better than that. Yeah, you're not going to do much in this league if, if you don't rush for more than 12 yards in the first half. It probably from the outside, the perception of them was uh, they had bad ownership. This was pre-Arthur Blank. This was the Rankin-Smith family. I think a lot of people sort of viewed Atlanta as a great place to live but did not view it as a great sports city, certainly not a great pro sports city. Mm -hmm. Specifically with the Falcons, they couldn't get out of their own way. They had some good players through the years, but um, they never really had the structure and discipline and honestly, the intelligence in the front office to put together uh, consistent competitive winning teams. And so when it was announced in late 2001 that Arthur Blank would become the new owner of the franchise... Did you imagine that this would be sort of a turning point for the franchise? When Arthur Blank took over, I was convinced that they were getting an owner who really was a competitive guy personally, and he was going to do everything he could to win. Now, other owners in sports have had similar traits, but weren't successful because they hired the wrong people or they tried to get too involved with the athletic part themselves. So I couldn't make that determination about Arthur Blank. But I was convinced that he was going to be very visible in the Atlanta area, as he had been with Home Depot. Um, he was already somewhat of a, a hero here. Mm -hmm. uh, and that he would be invested in the team, that he would do everything he thought he could do and should do to put a winning product on the field. Yeah, and he spoke about that often, sort of taking a page from his, his time as Home Depot co-founder about the importance of the product. And I remember when he took over, I, I, attendance was awful for the Falcons. And I, and I think he, he made seats as cheap as $10 a game. No, that's correct. He, uh, so he, he basically officially took over the team late in one season. And as I recall, the, uh, the Falcons, right after he took over, were blown out of a game um, by the Rams who played in St. Louis at the time. And, and Arthur was on the, the team plane flying back. And the story goes, and he's, he's told the story a few times, was that you know, normally obviously he sits in the front of the plane, but he walked all the way to the back of the plane during the flight and to talk to the players. And um, obviously all the guys were down and depressed. They just got you know beat up again. Uh, it was a bad season. And he said, look, I'm your owner. You know, I can't coach football, I can't play, but I wanna know what you think I can do to help you. And he said universally, uh, all the players said, get people in the seats. And that's what led to him that following year, which was his first full season, to come up with the $10 tickets. And not every seat, obviously, sure. in the Georgia Dome was $10, but there were enough and they sold them out. And uh, there were other owners around the league that did not like what Arthur Plank did because he, he basically um, cut down the product in terms of uh, the cost of it. Mm -hmm. But it worked for him and it worked for Atlanta. And um, he immediately got credibility with the fans and the players from that move. So coming up on, you know, almost 20 years that he's been owner, do you feel like he's become a more patient and indulgent owner or as he's gotten older and there have been no Super Bowl rings to bring home to Atlanta, um, he's become less patient? I think he's become more patient. I don't think he's he's happy about not having a Super Bowl ring. I think he's, that still drives him. But I, I actually wrote this in a column for The Athletic last year um, when Dan Quinn did not get fired at midseason despite a one and seven start. 
and I wrote a column that basically said the old Arthur Blank would have fired Dan Quinn. I think the more sports experienced Arthur Blank sort of sits back a little bit more now. He understands sometimes in, in, in athletics things take time. Um, it, it's not like when he ran Home Depot and a store ran out of sheetrock and all he had to do was snap his fingers and he got more sheetrock. Things don't work that easily in, in, in sports. In 2015, when he hired um, Dan Quinn as the new head coach, who is coming off of being an incredibly successful defensive coordinator at Seattle. I know we have an extremely passionate fan base here in Atlanta. And uh, I want to know that the brand of football that we're going to play is going to be fast and physical. Uh, we're going to attack in every phase that we can do it. And then most importantly, uh, I would like you to know that the energy and the enthusiasm you bring to the Atlanta Falcons uh, can be unmatched in terms of the energy I'll try to bring to you as your head football coach. What went through your mind as, as a beat writer for the Falcons? Well, it was an interesting time because Mike Smith had been fired. Uh, Smith was a successful coach for a while until his last two years. I thought Dan Quinn was a really good hire. Um, they needed to fix the defense. The uncertainty in the organization that existed at the time was uh, Thomas Dimitrov, who was the general manager, was retained. There was some uncertainty in terms of whether or not he was going to be fired too. And uh, when they were interviewing Dan Quinn, I, from what I understand, the way the interview sort of went was, look, we really want you. Do you think you could work with Thomas Dimitrov? And Dan basically said, yes, I can. Right. And so Dan Quinn was given some autonomy uh, in terms of the roster. Dimitrov's power was, was undercut just a little bit, but they worked really well together. This was a team that you really believed was going to compete for titles for the next three, four, five years at least. Yeah. You mentioned um, Thomas Dimitrov and Dan Quinn, Dimitrov being the GM and Dan Quinn, of course, being the head coach. Can you sort of break down what the roles of the GM is here in this franchise? Because it does differ sometimes slightly. Yeah, it, it does. Um, so start with the generic thing. The GM picks the players, the, the coach coaches the players. But Dan Quinn and Thomas Dimitrov had a really good partnership. They both would look at tape of college players together. They would And they would try to come to some agreement on who to pick. And Arthur Blank addressed this uh, the other day when he fired both. I mean, it's really sort of hard to figure out those gray areas, you know, yeah. whose fault is it? Who gets the credit? Who gets the blame? You know, it becomes uh, increasingly difficult to separate them. And I think um, we felt that we had given both gentlemen a, you know, a long period of time to uh, to create, you know, the winning environment that we that we promised ourselves and promised our fans. And they both haven't done it. So it was the right decision for them both in this case. Back to Dan Quinn, you've written that he, of all the coaches that you've covered and known over the years, that he is probably the most likable. What is it about him that engendered so much loyalty uh, among his players? He's just a genuine guy, you know. Um, I don't know how else to explain it. He's down to earth. I have covered some cold, calculating people in sports before. I don't know that Dan has that side of him. Falcons running back Todd Gurley spoke to the press after the game against Carolina last weekend before the team announced that Dan Quinn had been fired. I was free agent, you know, guys wanted to 
the only guys that give me a, a call personally and, and reach out to me. So, um, you know, when everybody think I lost it, you know, he believed in me. So, you know, I can't can't do nothing but ride and rock with a guy like that. But sometimes that relationship can 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 be a detriment um, because somebody might say, "I love Dan Quinn. I love Dan Quinn." But are you really going out there and playing hard for him? Or are you getting too comfortable? Right. I think that possibly was an issue these last couple of years. Love can be a motivator for excellence, but so can fear. Exactly. It's a tough line to, to sort of walk. And I think as a coach, you just kind of have to know. And I don't know if Dan ever really figured that out. What impact does the lingering trauma, yes, trauma, of the Falcons' Super Bowl collapse in 2017 have on the franchise and on the fans. Could we be cursed? That's ahead. This is Georgia Today. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's through line wherever you get your podcasts. This is Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. I'm speaking with Jeff Schultz, senior writer at The Athletic, who's covered the Falcons for years. I wanted to, to kind of like go back to Super Bowl 51 in that fourth quarter. And I'm kind of, I'm, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but I'm curious as you watched things fall apart, what was going through your mind that day? This can't be happening, can it? <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, I wasn't surprised that the Patriots were coming back because that's what makes sports great. It's it's this, it, it's the greatest reality TV show in the world. Out of the shotgun, Ryan gets hit. Ball is out. This is a fumble. New England has it. But there was a point, and this is when I started writing, when Julio Jones made an amazing sideline catch. Ryan steps through it, throws on the run, and Jones with a catch. Phenomenal catch by Julio Jones on the sideline. And all the Falcons had to do was run the ball three times, kick a field goal, and the game was over. And that didn't happen. Ryan is set. What a play. I was stunned. And with the sack and the hold, the Falcons are not in position to add to an eight-point lead. When you're in the media, you can't really get emotionally attached to the people you cover because you have to view things objectively. But I felt really, really bad for some of those guys on that team who I, who I got to know personally, because I, I know what it would have meant to the city of Atlanta to win that game. And I know what it meant to them to lose that game in the way they lost it. The next day, I think I was still somewhat traumatized. I, I, I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of fans who still feel that way. Yeah, and I, I don't want to make it sound like that's why the Falcons are bad now. Because I really don't think as they go through these things day to day, none of them are thinking, boy, I wish we had won that Super Bowl. But athletes aren't really wired the same way as fans are. 
all fans are doing is sitting back watching games and they're looking at the whole big picture of I've been a fan for 40 years. Do you know what happened back in, you know, yeah. <laughs> 1977? It's just, it's completely different. Well, that's why you get people using the word curse. Yeah, well, uh, we could do a whole nother show on um, <laughs> sacrificing the chicken if you want. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I look, look, people will believe in a curse until the Falcons win a Super Bowl, right? Falcons, if the Falcons ever won a Super Bowl, everybody's going to say, well, we should have won two Super Bowls. But at least they won't say it's a curse anymore. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to to finally talk about the expectations going into the 2020 season and how things started looking out and how and why they fell apart. The 2019 season, you really have to go back to when it was two different seasons. I mean, they started one and seven, they finished six and two. Arthur Blank clung to the belief that the six and two season represented a turnaround. The, the half of the last season where they performed well was was a sign of things to come, not the other half. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Yeah. And um, I didn't view it that way. By and large, you play differently um, when games matter versus when they don't matter. And I think they did get a little desperate in the second half last year because they didn't want Dan Quinn to get fired. And I've also covered sports long enough to know that there is no such thing as momentum carrying from one season to the next. There would be no momentum carrying from 2019 second half to, to the start of 2020. Mm-hmm. And I think what we see now is the one in seven start was much closer to reality. We saw some of the same problems that we saw in the first half a year ago, and things quickly unraveled because there was no confidence there. Yeah, and Shannon Sharp was pretty vocal about that, especially after the Falcons blew a 15-point fourth-quarter lead against the Cowboys in Game 2. So the Falcons gagged this away. I don't know how Arthur Blank leaves Dan Quinn in the job. I've never seen an epic collapse like this. Skip, this is, wor- Skip, this is worse than the Super Bowl. So when you broke the news um, that Dan Quinn's firing was just a matter of hours away, I guess you weren't surprised. <laughs> no, no, I, I really think, and I and I sort of wrote this a little bit, I, I really think he was going to be fired the week before after the Green Bay game, but um, I really think Arthur Blank decided, let's just give Dan Quinn one more week. It's a home game. It's against Carolina. It's a game we can win, and if we win that game, then we'll just see what happens just like last year. Here's a question that I felt Dan Quinn needed to be asked at what turned out to be his last press conference before getting fired. Would you understand it, uh, Dan, if Arthur came to the decision that it's just not working and it's the decision uh, to change has to be made? Uh, Honestly, Zach, it's the furthest thing from my mind. It's his job to evaluate, but for me, it's coaching. And uh, I'll work as hard as I can to align our our team to, to play like we're capable of playing. Even though I broke the story at 4.45 or whatever it was, you know, in the afternoon on Sunday, um, the plan was still to fire him late the next day. But I think what happened was after I broke the story, the thing basically went viral online and... Uh, you accelerated the timeline. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I sort of screwed things up. Thank mm-hmm. you very much. And so five hours after the tweet, he basically said, screw it, we're just firing everybody now. And, I think it was around 9.30 that night or so that they sent out the press release. And have you talked with Arthur Blank since the firing? 
Well, he had a virtual press conference on Monday mm -hmm. and um, somebody asked him, um, what's the biggest thing you're looking for? Or, or what's the biggest thing that was lacking, whatever. And he said, it's called lack of winning. Uh, so the problems we have to solve are all the problems that are ahead of us that keep us from winning. Um, this is not just a response to a zero and five. It's a response to uh, really uh, almost three and a half years post Super Bowl. We've been playing less than 500 ball. And so when you look at that many games over a long period of time and you adjust for injuries, which every NFL team has, we just haven't performed at the level that we're capable of. So what's the sequence now? Do they find a GM first who then is involved in hiring a coach or how does well, that, it work? That's the old school way. You know, you, you hire the general manager, the general manager hires the coach. Uh, I'd say over the last five, six years, maybe even a little more, coaches have gotten more and more power. The really successful, attractive candidates have exerted that influence to get power in terms of personnel decisions and stuff like that. So an answer, short answer to your question is, I think it's going to depend a lot on who's available and who's interested. Mm -hmm. So there's one more layer in, in all this, and, and I'm curious what effect that has. And that would be Rich McKay, who's been omnipresent in this franchise for years and years. He's the club president. What is What role does he play? That's a million-dollar question there. Uh, Rich was pretty much outside of football ops for several years. And then before last season, after things really spiraled in 2018, Arthur Blank basically restructured his organization again to effectively create a layer between him and football ops. And that layer was Rich McKay. So Thomas Dimitrov and Dan Quinn, who previously answered directly to Arthur Blank, mm -hmm. now are answering directly to Rich McKay, who was answering to Arthur Blank. That existing layer right now is going to be uncomfortable, I think, for any candidates they go after. They're definitely going to want to know exactly what Rich McKay's role is in football ops moving forward. If you are a coveted candidate to be a coach or general manager, but now you're looking at the power rankings in the organization and you see Rich McKay up there, you're asking the owner, well, what's he doing? I thought you're bringing me in to fix the organization. Right. They're really going to have to convince the candidates that, no, you guys are in charge. He's just there to give you anything you want, basically. Jeff, do you have any words of encouragement amid all this for the long-suffering mm -hmm. Falcons fans among us? You know what? Just as 28-3 to 3 happened in a bad way, um, sometimes things happen in a good way. Things in sports change quickly. The Falcons do have some talented players. And so it looks bad now. It will be bad the rest of the year. I will be very surprised if they won a ton of games. But it may not be as long as doom and gloom stretch as some people think. Our thanks to Jeff Schultz, senior writer for The Athletic. A day after he fired Dan Quinn, Arthur Blank named defensive coordinator Raheem Morris as the Falcons' interim head coach. Here's Morris discussing what needs to be done to reverse the team's losing streak. You know, right now we got a lot of people in disarray, you know, both on the personnel side, both on the coaching side, and everybody's trying to figure out what to do and how we're going to do it next. So my number one job right now is to get all tied together and find out how to go win this next game. But the Falcons' disarray intensified on Thursday when ESPN reported that multiple members of the Falcons organization had tested positive for COVID-19. For its part, the team confirmed just one new case, 
but also announced that it was temporarily shutting down its training facility in Flowery Branch, with plans to reopen on Friday. And as of now, the Falcons' next game, scheduled for Sunday afternoon in Minneapolis against the Vikings, is still a go. This is Georgia Today, a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. You can subscribe to our show at gpb.org slash georgiatoday or anywhere you get podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Have a story idea? Connect with us at georgiatoday at gpb.org. Our producers are Sean Powers and Priya Mahadevan. Our intern is Eva Rothenberg. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.